Well, hello, John. Greetings and salutations to those who are listening. You this always is, uh, begin that way. I know, I do. I'm I sorry. The Greetings and salutations. <laughs> well, there you go. So some people may be watching this, and uh, probably most people are going to be listening to this, the podcast, Life and Books and Everything. And you've already heard from my guest, John Piper. John, thank you for being here. On Life and Books and Everything. We're going to talk about your new book, Come Lord Jesus, in just a moment. I do want to mention Crossway. Grateful for them sponsoring LBE. Yes, it's abbreviated now. And I want to mention the ESV Church History Study Bible, edited by Stephen Nichols. Uh, so Stephen Nichols works with Lanier and uh, the Bible College there. And I listen to him regularly with his five minutes of church yeah, history. Yeah. I love it that it's five minutes. Yeah. I get it. And uh, so I'm sure he's put some of that expertise into this church history study Bible. And it features hundreds of study notes on specific passages written by historical figures like Calvin, Edward Spurgeon, many others. It includes an introduction to each book. Articles about different phases of church history. Historical figures has some of the ecumenical creeds. So do look at that. I love church history. I know John does too. Edited by Stephen Nichols from Crossway. John, thank you for coming on and talking about your book. I think you were on maybe two years ago talking about the Providence book. So I just, uh, here it is, if anyone's watching, Come Lord Jesus. And on the, what first struck me is on the inside cover, you probably just go buy this, but other books by John Piper. It's a very long list, and this isn't everything. 35 books here, and there's more. When, when, when you hear that or someone introduces you or you think, and you see 35 books, did, did, you, ever, did you ever think you would write this many books? No. No. I didn't, I didn't think I would write books at all. You know, it wasn't, wasn't uh, part of uh, the dream. My life has uh, been sort of uh, Organic, you might say. Oh, well, so it wasn't a dream. I'm interested in that because I, if you would have asked me, I think my Why We're Not Emerging came out in 2008, you would have asked me before that one bucket list. I would have just said, man, if just sometime in my life in the next 50 years I could write a book, that would be amazing. And... Uh, so the Lord's opened more doors than I ever thought possible. But you didn't even have that. You didn't have a, you know, when you were getting your your doctorate, you were teaching and going into the ministry. Once you're, once you're, uh, I, I wanted to finish my dissertation. Okay, but beyond that, you didn't have, you didn't, you didn't think of yourself as an author, or have that dream. I thought of myself as a teacher. Yeah. If there was overflow in articles or books, that was quite secondary. I loved the classroom when I finished graduate school, taught at Bethel for six years and considered it very fulfilling, very rewarding. But I was, I was writing on the side, right. and uh, I suppose it was an overstatement to say I never dreamed of writing a book because I did want to publish the dissertation, and I did submit it almost immediately to a, a place, and, and it was published. But the first popular book, Desiring God, was, was a complete surprise. It was a sermon series. And along came Steve Halliday from, from Multnomah. And he said, what are you doing? What are you preaching on? And I said, well, I'm working through a series. I'm, I'm calling it uh, Desire God or Christian Hedonism. And he said, can I see him? 
So I gave him the manuscripts, and lo and behold, he says, can, can we work with you on this? And, uh, and that was a surprise. It wasn't planning to be. That was your first popular Yeah, there were two academic book. books, Justification of God, God right. and, and Love Your Enemies, and then came Desiring God. And, and Desiring God was popular enough, and still is, that uh, once you do that, a publisher is willing to right. take another risk. So that will, I mean, who knows what the Lord will do, but there's a good chance that will be the book you're most known for. I mean, that's what the ministry is named after. And that was the first one? The first one yeah. that had any popular traction. And, and what it did in the church, and this might be encouraging for pastors, is um, I, went, I went to the deacons at the time and had elders mm-hmm. until a couple years later. And, and I said, Look, it seems like God is blessing this book. Um, they would like me to do more. Is that something you would want to encourage me to do? Because I, I don't want to use the church as, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as a springboard to do my own thing. And if, if, if you can consider it part of the ministry of spreading passion for the supremacy of God and all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus, I'm willing to do that. And the upshot of that was that um, for the pleasures of God, which came next, they said, why don't you just take a, a leave in the summer, just four weeks, and do what you can with that. And I, I brought them a book. And they basically said, okay, if you can do that every year, you can have four weeks. And, and that's what we did for years. We just, you know, years. And since my books were basically sermons, yeah. re- reworked into books, I did a book a year. Or I was, so. was going to ask that because I think most of my books, some, but most are not sermons, right. and and I don't write out my manuscripts, so that's part of it. It's very laborious for me to take a transcript of my sermons usually and make it into a book. And I don't think, I don't know that my preaching makes for good books, but some some have gone that way, and I won't say which ones, because then people will say, ah, oh, I knew that's why I didn't like that book. <laughs> uh, but have most of most of yours have started as sermons? I, I, I don't know the percentage, but I want to say yes. I mean, either sermons or star articles, that is, we have a newsletter, yeah. probably three books came out of those at least, or conference messages, or um, devotions for, the, for almost... I've almost written nothing from scratch. That would be maybe fair to say. Hmm. Uh, and even even a big book like Providence, which was the least sermon oriented, uh, that that was not built on fifty sermons. That was just written from scratch. But if people ask me, how long it take you to write that seven hundred fifty page book? I said forty or fifty years. Meaning, right. meaning simply, that's all I thought about. Pretty much, is God sovereign? Is God good? How does that work together? What does the Bible say? Notes, articles. Devotions, I have heaps of material. So uh, you can look in here if you want to refresh yourself what you've written. In any of these, I'm asking you all the questions I didn't put on here. I just thought of them this afternoon, so I apologize. <laughs> but as you look at these books, were there were there a couple that particularly uh, fed your soul during them, or some on the opposite? And you thought, I'm just. I still believe it, but I'm just, I'm glad it's done. I didn't really enjoy the process of writing. Some that stand out, either particular joy in writing. You can think of it. I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I did not 
enjoy writing the book I wrote on homosexuality. Uh, I think I've mentioned that before. I thought it would be, I'd written so much on the topic, I thought I could just pull some blog posts and some articles and sermons and put it together and I'd have a book. And then I realized, yeah, that wasn't, I, I needed to rework things. And then I read a lot in the Greco-Roman world and it's really dark. And uh, the whole thing felt heavy and I didn't, I'm glad I did it and I hope it serves people. Uh, so that one stuck out for me as, I was just so glad it was yeah. done. What do you have on either end of that spectrum? Well, I, uh, it would be interesting maybe to say that I both enjoyed and returned to seeing and savoring Jesus mm. Christ. Because I, I wrote that book for unbelievers. I don't know if God was using among unbelievers, but I, I wanted it to be a kind of um, apologetics, meaning if I could just show how beautiful he is. How wonderful he is. And so the chapters are simply exaltations mm -hmm. about traits of Jesus. And that's what I need for my soul almost every day. So sometimes I'd go back and read my own <laughs> meditations and enjoy Jesus that way. I'm trying to think of what I was glad I was doing. I mean, there have been some really hard ones. Providence was hard, but I'm so glad I did it. I think. Um, it, it's got a new title now. It used to be called uh, What Jesus Demands from the World. Yeah, I yeah, think I it's can called, picture it. It's called uh, all, all That Jesus Taught. We're just republishing it now. And uh, that that was a challenge, and yet I'm so happy with it. I wish the book were known more by more people because I, I said, look, if it says at the end of Matthew that you should go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe everything I commanded you, to observe everything I commanded you. I said, where's a manual for missionaries or anybody hmm. else who would take a book and say, this is everything he commanded okay. us. Yeah. Everything he commanded. So it's not everything he taught. But I looked up all 500 either explicit or implicit imperatives in the Gospels. That's how many? 500, uh, well, give or take? Yeah, give or take. And, and I said, I'm going to write this book without using Paul. So if you look at the index of what Jesus demands from the world, I've got two references to Paul and hundreds of references to the Gospels. Because I, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of higher criticism, German criticism, they'll say that Paul wrecked Christianity. And I'm finding Pauline theology all over the Gospels, right? right. right? And I'm, I think I'm being faithful. So I think it's a missionary handbook for everything he commanded. But it was, it was very difficult because uh, Jesus commands very hard things. And what do you have still percolating? I'm sure you've got ideas. What do you want to write on? We're going to get to this book in just a moment. I, am, I, am, uh, I just finished a three-week leave, what do they call it, writing assignment from Desiring God to work on a a book which would have a subtitle, something like uh, Foundations for Lifelong Learning. Hmm. And it's grown out of our conception of education at Bethlehem College and Seminary, where we say we've got six habits of mind we'd like to build into students. And they're basically taken over from Mortimer Adler, how to read a book. Uh, observation, understanding, evaluation, feeling, that's our peculiar one, application, expression. 
those six habits of mind, and I wrote a well, 5,000 words on each of them, and so there's a, there's a 45,000 book ready to go there, but we're thinking about surrounding it with maybe some other other mm. authors, and, and uh, but that's, that's the most immediate present thing, and uh, nothing else on the horizon. So here's a hard question you maybe can't answer. Do you, do you uh, just surveying the landscape, and uh, I hope you're not coming to the end of your life, but you're closer to the end than to the beginning. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, what do you, do you see? A, do you think of a book that, man, this book needs to be written, but John Piper just isn't the person to write it, but somebody out there, I hope you do? That's a really good question. Most of books I think about, I want to <laughs> Yeah, I know what that's like. <laughs> uh, well, you think you can let me know, especially if you think Kevin DeYoung should write it. Yeah, I will let you know. I'm going to have to give some. All right. All right. But the, I, I thought you were going that it has to be written quick before you die. Oh, okay. Well, you and, might have that too. Well, I just, I, I have referred to the glory of God a billion times. Yeah. It is supremely central to reality and to the Bible. And I know there are books out there with the title, What is the Glory of God? I want to write more about it. I want to say, what are we talking about? We throw it around, we use it so often. So, you know, a manageable book on what is the glory of God. Well, that would be good. I hope you do that. And uh, what do you, so you were pastor for how many years at Bethlehem? 30? 33. 33 years. So you were how old when you started? 34. Okay, 34. So you were 34. Did that for 33 years. So now you've been, retired is not the right word at all, but you've been doing DG and writing in, in Bethlehem for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So how is your your routine different? Because you have for 33 years. The thing about Sundays, I always tell people, is there is one every week. Yeah. It yeah. gives a, a wonderful shape to your life, and it's also relentless. How different is your weekly, daily schedule of the last mm -hmm. 10 years versus 33 before that? Yeah. Well, that would be right at the top of the list of differences because... The way I worked after the first one or two years of trial and error was to devote Friday and Saturday to getting ready for that sermon and Sunday, and eventually sermon Saturday night. Um, that's not there anymore. So that relentless push is not what my Fridays and Saturdays go to. That's one. Probably the one I feel the most is my evenings are free, mm -hmm. meaning um, I felt both on call and in meetings regularly. Evenings did not feel mainly relaxed. They felt like the phone was about to ring. And it doesn't ring anymore. And I sit there with my wife for two hours after supper thinking, this is weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you do? What do people do with this? They do bad things. They do, they yes. Do. They watch dirty movies. Especially if you don't have a gaggle of kids to take care of. And that helped. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. We used to joke at Bethlehem that no meeting started before 7.15. And people would say, why do meetings around here not start before 7.15? And the answer is the pastor plays with his kids until 7. Yeah. And then he takes 15 minutes to get ready to come over. <laughs> and he comes over. So that's, that's the way it felt. So those are two significant differences. There's a, you know, one other difference is the pastor is uh, 
ever responding to utterly unexpected demands. Yes. John, John MacArthur said to me once that the hardest thing about ministry is that you're always responding. You're never your own creator. You're just responding, responding, responding. Sermons are response. Everything is response to other people's claim. You're a firefighter, and there's fires. And, and, and that's not true anymore. I, my, my ministry is laid out for me by desiring God. They have these things they want me to do. They ask Pastor John, and look at the book, and my preaching class that I do, and the Chancellor Ministries, they're, they're just all laid out and doable. I bet a lot of listeners wonder, does John Piper relax? Does John Piper do things for fun? Yes, my <laughs> wife and I. Um, well, in the summer, I love yard work. So that'd be yeah, okay. I get a quick answer. I, I rake my own leaves. I pull my own weeds. You're in the same house you've been in for decades. I've been in the same house for 40 years. I shovel my own snow. Yeah, and there's been 52 you. inches of it this year. And that piles on the side are about this high. I put that snow there. Yeah, that's good. And, and you so run on the treadmill? I run on the treadmill. That's not fun, but it's it's what I do in the mornings. Um, and we play Scrabble, my wife and I. We do word, crossword puzzles. Um, we talk. That's good. Yeah. Sometimes during supper, we'll watch Perry Mason reruns. Okay. I, I, I just saw they're making a remake of it with on one of the streaming services. Uh, it's sure probably it's be, going to be the kind of movie I don't watch. Yeah, yeah. It'll it'll probably. I have to go back be. fifty years in order to find something my my level of tolerance of nudity will handle, or, well, or just worldviews that are so in your face I can't take them. Do you? Your thank you for doing this podcast. Uh, do you? Do you actually listen to podcasts? You don't have to say you listen to this one or not. I'm not asking that, but do you listen to other ones? Is I, that I I have a long list of podcasts on my phone, and I almost never listen to them. I used to I enjoy podcasts, and I used to listen to more, but my my uh, priorities have shifted over onto listening to books. Yeah, I, I so I have I have very little time to devote to podcasts. So everything is brushing your teeth, getting dressed. I don't even drive anywhere. Right, so I can't listen in the car. So it's all these little three or four minutes while the tea is uh-huh. steeping, and these little three to five minute segments. And I'm listening to Ron Chernow's Hamilton, Milton, yeah. which is thirty six hours. Yeah, he write, He doesn't write short books. <laughs> thirty six hours. That three minutes a shot is a long time. But I've just decided that the kind of thing I need is is not mainly what, what podcasts are doing, like what we're doing right now, about immediate and interesting and helpful guidance. Mm-hmm. So I'm not doing that anymore. I, I want the, the bigger picture, history, and theological help in that way. Do you listen to sermons? Not anymore. I used to. Every now and then, I used to, I used to listen to Ian Murray and J.I. Packer and R.C. Sproul and... Um, you, you, this is an encouragement to you, but if I'm sick on Sunday morning, I'm good. You gotta be sick. I gotta be sick because I'm going to church. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay, okay. And, and, and if I don't, I'll just find Kevin Dion. He's online. I listen to Kevin. Well, I mean, that, that's true. I mean, there, I, there are not many pastors who are exegetically careful enough for me, believe enough right things. I got, I got a few things wrong, I know, but yeah. Yeah, but those are not the most yeah. things that I'm, I'm worried about. Well, good. Well, thank you for that. All right. Uh, you're grateful to answer all of those intro questions. So come, Lord Jesus, meditations on the second coming of Christ. Uh, so the very beginning, to George Eldon Ladd, and he shows up a lot in this book. 
who was George Elvin Ladd? I just listened to you do the podcast with Colin, and you got in to talk about Ladd, but many people wouldn't know who he is anymore. Who was he? Why was he influential in your life? He was a professor at Fuller. He was a pastor before that. He was a psychological, be careful, unwell man, as, as not, not a few of my teachers were, which always was a great testimony to grace for me as a student. I would look at the, the condition of these men and I thought, don't think I want to be that unhealthy. And, and was that known and seen at the time? I mean, we've heard about this. You're not telling you know, things that people, other people haven't said. Right. And I think young students didn't have categories at the time, probably, that we do now for assessing the nature of the issues right. of, of what they were dealing with. But the interesting thing and the relevant thing about the book is that Ladd was a... Um, a, a pastor who got his doctorate at Harvard, I believe, and wanted so bad with all that generation at Fuller to make a whopping impact on the guild of the New Testament world from Germany on down and were finding themselves hitting a very mm -hmm. unwelcoming wall. And when Norman Perrin reviewed Ladd's uh, book on the kingdom, it was so negative, it almost sent him into an institution, which meant he put too much eggs in the basket. But when he wrote the New Testament theology, mm -hmm. which is the last things he did, um, he went down the hall waving a $9,000 uh, check for royalties and saying, I did it. It, and, and it was better, it was reviewed, it was received better. I gather, I gather. At least it was selling. Yeah, um, yeah. It wasn't so academic that it couldn't sell. But, but his book on the king, which is now called Presence in the Future, I think is still in print. And it's good. It, it's, it was my introduction to the ubiquity of eschatology in the New Testament. Meaning eschatology is not a chapter at the end of a systematic mm -hmm. theology. It is right shot through because we're in the last day. We're in the last days, and all of the categories of salvation are categories that are end-time categories begun now. Right. So redemption is something I've got now. I've got forgiveness of sins. It's called redemption. And then Paul says, we await the redemption of our bodies. So to, that's the kind of already not yet that Lad he did that for thousands of people. He opened the already not yet reality of the New Testament. So that was huge. And he, he was known among popular folks as writing a good bit on the second coming. So mm -hmm. the blessed hope was a defense of post-tribulational premillennialism. And is that your position? It would be, yeah. I'm, I'm still at home there. I've tried to understand Revelation 20 another way and cannot get beyond the what seems to be pretty obvious there. So I'm not on mill, though I get along with people yeah. that are on mill, and uh, I'm definitely not post myth. So this book is, it's, I mean, you're, we'll get to that you're not pre trip. That comes out clearly. Right. I think people can see that you're pre mill, but this is, not, this is not a book about the millennium. This it, is not it, a book. Here's an interesting fact. 
because we've we've been talking about this a little bit about the prioritizing of, of doctrine. Yeah. And what you emphasize and what you do and how you maintain coherence and unity in, in your staff and in your friendships. If you take the collected works of John Piper, right, go to the index and look up free meal, you know how many times it's there? Zero. Yeah. In 50 books, I have never mentioned the word. I think that's true. Intentionally? No. It's just in, I mean, it's just, I mean, I mean I, I think it's instinctually intentional, meaning I'm not out to alienate anybody. And when I think about how all millennial people and pre-millennial people face the culture and face the end, the differences are mainly beyond the second coming, right? Beyond the second coming is where we, we don't understand history unfolding in the same way. People like me think it unfolds. There are more stages yet to unfold, not all done. And, and that, as far as I can tell, and I may be stupid here and naive, that does not affect presently the way we go about doing world evangelization or conceive of interacting with the culture. So I have not seen fit to emphasize that. Now, if you were a dispensational premillennial, a, 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 you know, in, in the very uh, extreme version, a left-behind series sort of, if that's how you, it seems like that would affect. There, there are some churches that you go into. I went to a Baptist church when I was in college and uh, never been gone to Baptist churches. So a lot of my, my friends at my public school who were serious about the Bible and who had this thing called devotions in the morning. They were Baptists, so I, I appreciate the Baptists. And I just went to a Baptist church in college because the guy preached good exegetical sermons. But it was news to me that all of a sudden we're getting a, a sermon on the 77s every year. We're getting an Ezekiel and a Daniel stuff. And this was all new, how important the, the end times timeline was. So the fact that you haven't mentioned pre-mill probably in, in some 50 books, does that suggest we make too much of it? Or is it, I heard you say pre-mill and on-mill. What about dispensational pre-mill? Or what about post-mill? Does that make a bigger difference in just day-to-day -day how well, someone might several think? questions. You just okay, well, answer whatever you want to answer. <laughs> how important is the millennial, one's millennial view? Um, it is possible to make too much of it. Um, and, and, and especially if, if you have it down with such precision that you can predict the end, right. and how Lindsay, I think, was supposed to be 40 years after 48, and it came and went in 1988, and it didn't happen, yeah. and, 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 uh, and I think the, the movies uh, probably didn't, didn't help. So the, the pre-tribulation understanding that um, the church is to be snatched out of the world, and then there's a seven-year tribulation, and then there's the second coming, is very popular view among conservative Christians. I think it's a mistaken view. I have a section giving my eight reasons why I don't believe what my dad believed on that. Um, and we got along really, really well. So that it is possible to make too much of that. I think that skews your understanding of suffering and the wrath of God and the sovereignty of God in the wrath of God and how wrath 
can be uh, purifying for Christians and punishment for non-Christians. And there's a way to understand walking through tribulation as believers that I think is really crucial for us to understand. Post-millennialism, yes, as far as I can tell from the serious post-millennialists I know uh, makes a big difference in the way they tend to approach uh, Christendom building or culture transformation in a way that I find uh, skews the New Testament emphasis and pattern of world evangelization and the worsening of the situation at the end rather than the improving of the situation. So uh, I wouldn't encourage anybody to go there. And I think that historically, some of our heroes would have been post-mill, though it can be hard to, to determine Amil from post-mill in some of them. There's a funny thing about that. Jonathan Edwards right. is known as being a post-mill. I read Edwards and was totally transformed by his theology for 20 years before I knew that. <gasps> yeah. Go, go figure. Uh, can I see in the index here where there's no mention to post I mean, How could I do that? I mean, I read book after book after book after book and didn't know that. So something's a little different there uh, in the way he went about teaching and preaching that enabled me, a pre-mill guy, to read this post-mill guy and not even know. I mean, clearly I was a nut not to know. You're supposed to know these things if, if you're a, an Edwards scholar, which I obviously wasn't. I was just, I was an Edwards lover. Right. Well, I wonder if there's a difference between post-mill as a cultural project and post-mill as, and I know the two can't be fully separated, but post-mill as an understanding of what God's been doing in history. So when I think of, and I don't know that all these guys were, were post-mill, but you know Samuel Miller, one of the first two professors at, at Princeton, old Princeton, you know, he, he writes very optimistically about you know, he, he, he writes favorably about the Enlightenment. I mean, he thinks there's problems, but he thinks this 18th century we've just been through, oh my God has, has opened our eyes to so many things and we're, we're better uh, with politics, we're better with, with natural sciences. We have seen a lot of new things. So I think there was that sort of, we are in the middle of God doing something in our world and look at the advances we have made. That's not how many of us, not many people see it that way. So it seems like most of the post-mill folks we would know today would actually see we are in a moment of profound cultural, at least in the West and in America, degradation. And therefore it lends itself to the need for a project to reclaim it. So, but even, even those folks will give you some amazing statistics about the poverty being overcome, uh, health, health sure. issues being yes. phenomenally wonderful. I mean, the blessings of the modern age are staggeringly I great. I agree. Yeah. And, and so my, my plea to anybody would be, um, don't fall into the trap of saying, in the bad times we're going to be premillennialists, and the good times are going to be postmillennialists. So determine your eschatology by the wind that's blowing. That's ridiculous. You, you shouldn't do that. You should read your Bible and decide what does it teach and that's stand right. with it in the best and worst of the times. So let's go to the ask, I want to ask a few questions because you said you have eight reasons about uh, why you don't believe in the secret rapture as a pre-trib secret rapture. Am I saying that yes. how you would say it? 
Now, did you have, you must have had, because I, I'm in a Presbyterian church, and yet I will sometimes get people who will say, now, pastor. And they, they sometimes start the question like this, which is always <laughs> dangerous. Now, I'm sure you believe in the rapture. And then they ask their question. They have to say, well, I love you. I don't believe in the rapture as you're, under, as you're explaining it. And then it's mine. Well, but you believe the Bible, Pastor. You preach the Bible so much. I thought I was on good ground. Uh, and it is just very hard for me to explain to people, wonderful, godly saints who have grown up with that, that I do believe everything the Bible says, and I don't believe in this secret rapture. And in fact, it, historically, I don't think very many people have. Did, did you encounter that a lot in Bethlehem? His name was Clayton, to be represented. Yeah. So when I came to Bethlehem, um, there were about 300 people. They were almost all over 60. And my guess is virtually all of them believed that way. And uh, I told the search committee, this is not what I believe. And they were kind of surprised. I gave them my reasons, and believe it or not, they still called me. Yeah. Um, and I didn't load those cards on the table in church, in a public gathering for, for quite a while. But I did on a Sunday evening, and, and I was just laying out my understanding of how the end times would flow in very general terms, not a lot of detail. And Clayton, at the back, said, no! Really out loud, he just said no. <laughs> and I, I said, I said, Clayton, I, I understand that you and probably a lot of others in in the room here don't see it this way. I just want to know I love you, and we're going to find out at the last day you're right. you're right or I'm right. And and you know, he, he was very antagonistic for a few years. His heart toward me changed so profoundly that when he and his wife moved to Iowa and she passed away, uh, he called me mm. on the phone and asked me to come to a funeral. Oh. So I, I say that to pastors to say, you know, your early adversaries, don't give up on them. That's right. Don't, don't. They're, they're going to be some of your sweetest supporters, even if, if you don't change their mind. Yeah. The, because people believe that because they believe the Bible. And if they see this pastor is a Bible lover and you earn their trust long right. enough, they'll say, okay, we'll get along with that. One of the most important revelations to me in pastoral ministry, and I make sure students hear it, is, you know, where Paul tells the Corinthians, my heart is wide open yeah. to you. They think he's fickle. They think he's phony. They're upset with him. They're angry with him. And I'm not saying it's easy. There's, a, there's been a lot of times where my heart starts shrinking down Grinch-like to somebody, and I'm, I want to, that's shut. You're, you're not, my heart's shut to you because You've shut your heart to me, but Paul just, you have to hear that as a pastor. You, you have, it doesn't mean you're naive, but you, you have to keep your heart open to people for the, for the Claytons that love the Bible. And not everyone, I mean, some people never come around, but some do, and you have to have yeah, your heart yeah, open to them. Yeah, there was another one. I think she's gone now, so I'll use her name, Flossie, uh, who took my hand after the service, after I wrote a picture article that she didn't like. It. She took my hand, she said, Pastor, you're sick. You're sick. <laughs> and I called her on the phone. I said, can I come visit you? Well, that was my effort to say right. my heart is wife to you. I, I never want her. I never want her back. She she eventually left the church and thought I was just a, 
an unwell, proud, uh, misguided, <laughs> bad emphases pastor. But years later, I'd always meet her at funerals, right? Yeah, old yeah. people show up at their friends' funerals who are yeah. still at the church, and so we we see each other. And and in those early years, it was always cool, very cool. Near the very end, as she was approaching Jesus, she really warmed up oh, to me. Sweet. Yeah. I had the same thing happen. Those were on this. Yeah, so keep good. going. This is so good. So Don Larson taught anthropology at Bethel. Don was pushing the edges all the time. He's Jesus now. He's pushing the edges like when I say, what do you mean? He said, what do you mean about inspiration, Don? He said, uh, Moses wrote it and God blew the ink dry. <laughs> now, he didn't really mean that. He's just pushing, yeah. pushing the edges. And he and I were just like this in faculty meetings. He calls me on the phone when I'm a pastor 10, 20 years later. He said, John, this is Don Larson. Oh, okay, hi, Don. Uh, I, I had a heart attack, and I'm pretty sure I'm not long for this world. Mm. I just want to make sure we're okay. Oh, wow. We're okay. I love you, John, and don't want you to be mad at me. Uh, Jesus said we need to get ready. Isn't that great? Yeah. Taking the Bible seriously. If you take long enough to to give people a chance and you keep loving them, um, getting near death will will make you pretty serious about a lot of things. That's right. So so what? You don't have to give all eight answers, responses, but when somebody says, "But Pastor John, it says Jesus said there's going to be two in the field. There's going to be two at the mill. One's taken, one's left." There's the rapture. Why don't you believe that? I have no problem with the rapture. Yeah, you, right. you said you said rapture as you believe it. Right. I mean, it says um, in First Thessalonians four seventeen that the Lord will come and we will be caught up together. The heart pogmai, whatever the word is, there caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. So the first one caught up is rapture. I mean, it comes from the old Latin, I guess, of the. Vulgate that translated it somehow with rapture. So I, if you mean by rapture, the saints are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, that's a given. Right. The word says that. The word says that. The only question is, do you do you turn and go back to heaven for seven years, or do you welcome him in? And the apatasina, whatever the next word is, for a meeting, to caught up to meet the Lord in the air for a meeting. That word is used, this, this is one of the arguments that Ladd used that just powerful for me. He said that word is used twice elsewhere in the New Testament. One is when the saints come at the end of the book of Acts and Paul is heading into Rome, they come out to meet him and turn around and go back in. And the other one is when the virgins mm -hmm. go out to meet the bridegroom coming home. They go out and meet him and go back into the bridegroom. I said, oh, well, maybe meeting doesn't mean meet and leave. Right. It means meet and welcome. So, And I think that is what it means. So that's, that's probably the first thing I'd do. If, if they said, do you believe in the rapture? I'd probably say yes, but, and then I would go to verse Jesus eight. just pulled up the car in the driveway. Let's go out and meet him. Yeah. Not, hey guys, I came to go driving. You're here. You're coming in the house. Have a supper. Sit yeah. down. And, uh, oh my. I, I, I might try to divert their attention onto something glorious. Um, 
I might say at that moment, I, I won't, I, we're going to welcome him in. And do you know what one of the, one of the questions you asked me on your sheet was anything surprising, anything? Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. So here's one of those uh -huh. things that relates. I mean, I, I, I find this to be the most stunning picture of the second coming in the Bible. It's uh, Luke 12. And the picture is that the, um, the king is coming and he finds the servant doing what he's supposed to do, which is related to another issue we'll talk about maybe first time. And it says he will have them sit at table and he will come and bind himself like a servant and serve them. Diakonello. Mm -hmm. Like he's going to become a table waiter after he gets off his horse. Which is amazing. And takes yeah. off his kingly garment and the millions of angels are going to be standing around while he serves them. And it says that. How, how can you put together something so lowly and so servant-like with something so majestic, so glorious, so terrifying as the actual splitting of the sky, the lightning right. flashes, and there's a trumpet sounding and the command of God. And he then, now I don't know how the timing works there. Could be a hundred years between those two events, I don't know. But it's going to be amazing. And, and here's my theological take on that. He will never surrender the privilege of being the benefactor mm -hmm, mm -hmm. instead of the beneficiary in this relationship. He has no needs. That's right. He has no needs. You don't get to serve him that way. Son he of man came not to be served. There it is. And, and he never gives it up. He never gives it up. His mindset is always, I've got the riches, they've got the need. So let me follow up on that. I'm, where are we? Okay, we're maybe uh, more than halfway. So I want to mention, we got another, I want to mention another sponsor, Scriptura. And I'm going to give you this. Uh, if you're watching, you can see this. If not, you can imagine a very nice black box with a very nice leather Bible inside, has your name on it. Scriptura Bible, they craft beautiful, long-lasting, heirloom quality Bibles. Uh, they just sent me, they actually sent me two, and my wife is using one because hers was worn out, and I have one. Uh, listeners to this podcast are going to see 15% off their first order with LBE15 if you go there. So I, I really do thank use you. them. Beautiful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's wonderful. So, Scripture, thank you. Uh, two, yeah, I've got all these questions I want to get to. I, one thing that you mentioned in this book. And I've preached on the, the temptation of Jesus a, a number of times. But I had never thought of this, that you said to section, this is on page 4950, why did Satan prefer being worshipped over ruling all? That was so good. I never thought, because of course that's the, that's a, that's the, the temptation that, that he gives to Jesus. So just unpack that a little bit. What you saw there, and what is the answer to that question? Why did Satan want to be worshipped over ruling of all? Because some people might think, hey, if you, I don't need praise and adoration. I'd love to be in control of everything. Mm -hmm. But Satan didn't see that that way. And what does that teach us about what Christ is doing in the second coming? 
Well, I hadn't seen that connection either. Um, and I've always been puzzled. Number one, did Satan have the wherewithal to offer to give Jesus? That, yeah. And I, I think it ties in with him being the God of this age and being the head of rulers and authorities. Um, and so, in a sense, Satan had the right to say to Jesus, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you the glory of these nations. And so, as I pondered, why would he do that? It struck me that to, to be ruler is one thing, and why would he give it up? And the answer is, if, because the deal is, you get it, I get to worship. That's right, yeah. I get the praise, I get the glory, I get the honor. And I, I inferred from that that really what the human soul craves is to be worshipped. And that's how you get most glory for someone is to not just say they're very powerful, but to say that they are worthy of worship and that Jesus wants that. He wants to be glorified that way. He wants to be marveled at for that value that he is. Which makes sense why we are given rulership in the new heavens and the new earth. That doesn't, that doesn't circumvent the worship of Christ. And I almost, as you were explaining it in the book, was thinking it's almost like Satan understood if I give you, you rule, oh, because I am the God of this age, but I'm worship, you're really still my vassal. Yes. And I'm the suzerain. Yes. And I'm, I'm, I'm the Lord, and you're my, you can have puppet control over these right. kingdoms. Go to it. Yeah. To, but, what, to what end are you doing all these national things and getting all this low-level glory, you're doing it to the end that I might be seen as infinitely valuable and infinitely worthy. And so what, what good is that if you if you are supposed to be supreme? And, and the application I felt in my own life was the way in which my sinful heart can want to make the same sort of bar. Okay, Jesus, I'll... You're wise. You're in control. You can be Lord of my life. Can I? Can I still be the most important one in this equation? You can. You can tell me what to do. Call. You can. You can be Lord, but boy, I sure like the the strokes and like the yeah. adulation. We just heard a message in this conference where we yeah. are right now, where he defines sin as the hate of creatureliness, and which meant the hate of God being our God, and it confirmed me in a habit that I've had for some time of. Just getting on my knees once a day and saying out loud, I'm not God. I'm just saying to God, I'm not God. You are God and I'm glad. I, th I think that is so fundamental for e every human to say, but every pastor especially to say is, you're God. That's I'm right. not. I want you to know I'm good with that. You, uh, you have a section which I think the subheading is Jesus delivers us from the wrath of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And you go on just pulling for Bible verses, but Jesus destroys the wicked. Jesus strikes them. I mean, very graphic description of what Jesus is going to do. I think a revelation that weird, weird is, is not the right word, but striking the wrath of the lamb. You don't think of lambs mm -hmm. having wrath, but this is mm -hmm. like, and they're cowering. And mm -hmm. 
How do you help people? Because I'm sure you have this as a pastor, and I do too. How do you help people who recoil from, from, from any idea of God's wrath? In fact, it's, it's, it can be the stumbling block. Hell, conscious torment, Jesus coming back to punish people. Speak to the, to the pastor to help uh, really, you know, exegetically, but even existentially, how do you get people to not recoil at that? Yeah. Um, I, I doubt that you can in an instant. Right. In other words, I think that is the fruit that is not recoiling at the wrath of Jesus and the wrath of the Lamb and eternal hell and eternal conscious torment. Not rebelling against that is the fruit of an ever-growing sense of the majesty and holiness of God. The bigger your God is, the more horrible the offense against him is, and the more reasonable hell seems. That's the, that's the sickness. Your God is small, hell has to be light. Can't be hot. Mm-hmm. God is just too small. Meaning, the, the, the principle is this. Um, you determine the seriousness of an offense, not simply by how long it lasted, but the honor and dignity mm-hmm. of the one against whom it was performed. And if God is the one against sin is performed, then the majesty of your God will govern your sense of the rightness of the punishment for not doing it. That's the secret. So I'm, I'm going to say to those people, I, I know this may seem hard to you, but please give me a chance to display God in such a way that that begins to be less of a problem. Let me one, let me my first response. My second response might be more immediate would be to say, how serious do you think the death of Jesus is? How horrible was that? How mm. utterly uncalled for and unworthy and I don't know what they're going to say, but what I'm going to say is he, he came from infinite worth and beauty and glory and majesty and suffered the most ignominious, shameful suffering imaginable. What would that be? And basically I'm trying to get at the same point from the other direction, namely it's, he did that because of how bad you are. You are that bad. I am that bad. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. Yeah, the, the hymn, yeah, stricken, exactly. smitten, and afflicted. Exactly. So look, look, at, look at Jesus. That's hell taken on. And if you reject that, then you get the other hell. Now, what would be the corresponding thing? How, how horrible is that? And how horrible is this? And if they think that's not very horrible, then this won't be very horrible either. And so you've got to help them know Jesus in such a way that for, for the Son of God that's right. to come into the world and suffer what he suffered is so outrageous. So here's one, one, one more thing that, that I have found. The wrath of God in the New Testament, this might jolt them. Maybe I'd say this first. Just you got to know who you're talking to, right? I might say, you know the function of the wrath of God? You know the function in the New Testament? Is to make you patient. Romans 12. Exactly. Just yeah. thinking of Romans 12. 
Yeah. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. That, when you think about the wrath of God, the effect it's supposed to have on you is to make you love your enemy. And, and they're probably kind of like, well, it doesn't. <laughs> I think, well, that, that's, that's your problem. Because Paul is using vengeance is mine, I will repay, to say, you dare not. That's so your job. Your job is to love and die for me, and he is the sentence. He's the judge. He takes care of that. So that, those would be my three approaches. That's good. That good. And, and I think people instinctively feel almost as strongly as any emotion a sense of injustice. I mean, it can be you're trying to get through to your insurance and you're going through the Byzantine layer of phone tree and you can't get there. Or like I was flying two weeks ago and flight was delayed and then we didn't get on this flight. And then we were the first standby people and they didn't call our name. It was up on the board. And I went up to say, my name is in green. Am I getting the standby? And they just said, sir, all of the standby, go over here. We'll call your name. Just shoot aside. And they went through all the names. And my wife and I were standing there and they said, you didn't come up. You didn't call my name. They said, well, your tickets were printed here. Don't you know that when it's, no, you never told, I mean, and there was another woman who was in the same thing. We were the three people with the most miles and we didn't get on standby. Such a small inconvenience in life. And we were, you know, you're ready to pound out a 10,000 word, you know, complaint. And you don't think God has a right to have justice? The other thing I'll just suggest any pastors in particular, if you're counseling or even just parents, times I want to say to people who have that question, I want to try to understand and I'll say, uh, how, how much do you really want an answer to that question? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because there is the person who's very earnestly, I want to get there. I want you to help remove some of these obstacles. I want you to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. I want to get there. And it just doesn't feel right. Right, right. And then there's the person who's already decided the way they want to live, the person they want to sleep with, mm -hmm. the deconstruction road they're on. And this seems like kind of the most convenient, hardest question to answer. So go at it. And it's not even... And it's an intellectual issue masquerading the deeper yeah, heart yeah, issue. Yeah. Which might lead you to don't cast your pearls before swine. I mean, there comes a point where some things are too precious to share with those who are going to spit on them. And it takes a great deal of discernment to know when you've got the thread. A couple more questions about the book. One of the, the last chapters go to work, go to church. What do those two exhortations have to do with Jesus' second coming? Yeah, that's in the section. There's a section on why we should love the, the Lord's appearing. There's a section on the timing. Right. There's a section on how to live, and that's in the how to live section. And uh, those simply grow out of two texts, right? Um, the go to work text is that when the master comes and finds his servant so doing. In other words, I gave you a job when I left, and I gave you some talents, some money, just symbolic of whatever resources we have. Do business while I'm gone. And uh, 
What I want is not for you to be on a mountaintop looking into the sky when I come. Right. I want you to be busy. I just took great comfort from that as a, as a pastor for myself. I don't need to know the timing of the Lord. I just need to be doing when he comes, doing what he's calling me to do. And I just say that to all the lay people in my church. If you, if you believe you're in the job that God has equipped you to do and you're doing it responsibly for his glory, get up and go to work and be happy that if he comes at 10 this morning, then you will be found doing the right thing. That, that's where that comes from. And, and the, the other text I could use to defend that would be 2 Thessalonians is all built around the fact that some of the folks were so hysterical about thinking the Lord had come right. and quit their jobs. Right. And Paul says, get back to work and stop giving a black eye to the name of Jesus by being a moocher off of other people. That's, that's the argument. The, the, the uh, go to church is Hebrews 10. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today. And all the more, as you see the day yeah. of the Lord coming. So he made the connection. Hebrews makes the connection between the normal, steady state, mutual encouragement and uh, uses of the grace, <laughs> means of grace in relation to second coming. I didn't, I didn't make that up. All right, two, two more questions. Uh, we're over, we're coming up on an hour. Let me ask this. Uh, you say, okay, you have some, a couple, number of chapters related to, will Jesus come soon? And you have these three phrases. Did I get this right? Potentially near, holistically near, divinely near? Yeah, yeah. Unpack those. That's probably the, the freshest discovery yeah. in my efforts. So I, I know that, exegetically probably the biggest problem people have it c.s lewis had it a lot of people have it is did jesus uh, make a mistake when he predicted that he would come soon and i mean the soon the soon language the at hand language the at the door language is pervasive it's mm -hmm. not just jesus it's james it's peter it's paul they all use this language of soon and and the question is okay it's two thousand years what's, what's the deal with soon and uh, I think there is not just one way of dealing with that question exegetically. And the potentially near goes something like this. Um, if you say, my master is delayed, and begin to beat your servants, and drink, and get drunk, your master will come at an hour you do not know. My understanding of that text is not that you've misread the hour, but you fail to see this. Suppose the Lord is going to come in 25 years, which I think he could easily do. In fact, nothing can be a lot sure. Um, and you say, okay, 25 years, my master is delayed. And then beat and drink means you become spiritually oblivious and just do your own thing. And say, I'll get that fixed 20 years out. You won't. You won't. That's the point. You, you will unfit yourself and fail to realize what, what you thought was 25 years and long way off 
is potentially like tomorrow because you're going to be dead in your sins and blind as the bat and inebriated and have no spiritual sense of the signs of the times and he's going to take you off guard. So, so potentially near, um, he will show up at a time you don't expect that makes if sense. you try to uh, say he's delayed and therefore I can do my own thing. And then holistically near? I almost used the word prophetically near. But I thought that we holistically not going to communicate to anybody unless they read the, the chapter. Here's the picture, both in the Old Testament and the New. Lad taught me this, probably how to see this, namely the fact that when, when prophets spoke in the Old Testament, I think Jesus talks this way in the New, and they look at the future, it's telescoped in the sense that there are these ranges of mountains, yeah, right? Yeah. And on a, on a misty day, they'll look like one mountain. In Tennessee, I could count 12 mountain ranges, except on a misty day, it was one. Um, and they predicted something would happen. They see it. But they didn't distinguish whether it was on the near or the far mountain. Now, the holistic that I'm referring to is the whole mountain. One mountain's 2,000 years out, and one mountain's 30 years out, 70 AD. And, and they talked without any distinction as to which is soon temporally and which is soon as part of one mountain. So that's one way. Holistic means the prophetic perspective is such that both in New and Old Testament, things are going to happen soon right. when it actually was Babylon's going to be destroyed soon and the day of the Lord comes later and they're, they're collapsed into one event which is happening soon because they're all one piece and I think the New Testament was happy to leave it at that, that that the one piece is at the door the one of course that's the most explicit is the divinely near and that's 2nd Peter where the uh, naysayers, the skeptics are already saying where is the Lord's yeah. appearing it's been 30 years so where is it I mean, 30 years must have seemed like a long time. Like, where is he? He just went back. He's supposed to fix things and come back, and he's not. And, and Peter gives several answers. You, you think there's a kind of uniformitarianism going on here, namely nothing ever changes from the beginning to the end. He said, oh, yes, it does. There was a flood, and there's a lot of things change. And when he comes, boy, that's going to be a big change. But the main thing he says, and don't forget, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day, which means for us, he's been gone two days. Yeah. Two days. And two days is near. And, and if that sounds like um, double talk or uh, escape hatch, that's apostolic. <laughs> Peter said that. And I, I think it's there in the Bible precisely to help us to say, What's long to us? He said, do not count slowness as God counts slowness. You do, don't, don't judge that way. He has his reasons for why he's delaying, and that relates to world evangelization. But hasten the day. Yeah, that's Lord. right. That's right. <laughs> but I often think as a parent and just realize what things make sense to me as a father and don't make sense yeah. to my children. And one of those is your conception of time. You know, when you're mm -hmm. an adult you think in months and years, and you say to a child, we're gonna do this exciting vacation in 2024. It might as well be another lifetime. 
Yeah, but you realize, no, we gotta get. That's not very far away. Or if you said, I'll, I'll, I'll be back soon. You go on a trip and you're delayed another couple of days. Yeah. So I always think if if I if there is this kind of gap between me and my children, such that some things I do and say just do not make any sense to them. Surely we can allow for a much bigger gap between us or finite and God who is infinite. Let me let me ask this as my, my last question. The first sentence of the book, the aim of this book is to help you love the second coming of Jesus Christ. You, I'll put the question positively or negatively. You can answer either one. Negatively, why is it so hard for us Christians to love the second coming of Christ? Or if you want to answer positively, what makes John Piper love the second coming of Christ? Or do both? Just to make sure that folks know that goal of loving the second coming is taken from a Bible verse, which is why I wrote the right. book, Second Timothy um, 4. Eight. And all who love is appearing. And you explained that that's yeah, I mean, the second appearing. Paul says you get the crown of righteousness if you love the Lord's appearing. This is not an option. You can't be indifferent to the Lord's appearing and expect a crown of, of righteousness. But back, back to your, your question, um, well, out of sight, out of mind would be the yeah. simplest thing, but that's not it. This, this world is very much with us. I mean, the, the language of sleep and drunkenness is in Jesus, and it's in Paul, and it is intended to say, that's what's going to happen to you unless you fight the fight with great urgency. You're going to go to sleep spiritually, and you're going to be drunk, and drunk people and sleeping people don't know what's going on in the world. Yeah. And so we, we don't have any sense of desire, passion, or expectation because we're asleep. We're, we're, we're drunk. And we don't think reality. So that's, but, but I'd rather end on the positive side. Um, Paul said, even though he, he hated the thought, maybe hates him, not the right word, but he should shrunk from the thought of dying and leaving his body, even though he said to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. He wanted the second coming. He wanted to be overclothed with life. And uh, either, either way, I want the same thing. His, his goals were, number one, be alive when Christ comes. Number two, die and go to be with Jesus. Number three, stay and deal with these Kenneggers churches. <laughs> and and those those are my priorities. I, I would like. I believe at seventy seven. I think the Lord can come before I die. Mm. Um, I give reasons for that, even though I'm not an any moment guy. Yeah. Because there are some things I think yet to happen. Though I'm fallible as to how my read of the t- signs of the times. I think there are things, and yet I don't think they are such that a seventy seven year old can't last till he comes. So I, that was my my preference. I I. I I want to see the Lord. I want to see him in glory. I want, it, it says that he's coming to be marveled at by all who believe him. I think that's what we're made for. Mm-hmm. John Piper was made to see Jesus for who he is and to marvel at him in an emotionally fitting way and Allah, 2 Corinthians 3.18, be changed by that sight into his glory forever and ever. Made to marvel. That would be a good 
title. That's pretty much all I talk about. Yeah, that's pretty much. You should. You should. Do it. All right, Joe. Thank you. Crossway has just released this. Come, Lord Jesus. Meditations on the Second Coming of Christ by John Piper. John, thanks for teaching us so much. Thanks for being pastor. Thanks for being my friend. Thanks for being on Life and Books and Everything. And so for all of our listeners, watchers out there, until next time, glorify God and joy forever and read a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you.